On this episode of the Driving Improvement Podcast, it's Ask the Pro Sunday, where I answer your questions. In today's solo edition, we cover the tricky world of golf rules and maintaining the spirit of the game, what driver length is best for you, what you can do to create more speed in your golf swing, and the current state of my game and what I'm working on. All that and more, and your questions answered today on the Driving Improvement Podcast with Mark Russo, right now. Well, welcome in, everybody, to the Driving Improvement Podcast, and it's a fun day for me uh, because I'm just sitting here at my house, and we've got about six inches of snow on the ground, and I thought today, this you know, this morning was nice and chilly, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to throw it out there on my social media channels. Let's see if anybody has any questions they want answered. Most people up here are going to be a little snowed in, watching golf, watching TV, hanging out. So I thought, you know what, let's do a little Ask the Pro, and I put it out there on my social media channels, at Mark Russo PGA, on Twitter, Instagram, and got some good questions from some of you. So hope you'll stick with me today as we cover a few hot topics and a few things that might be able to help your game. And of course, I do this on a, uh, on a Sunday that Patrick Reed is leading the Farmers Insurance at Torrey. And of course, when I put the Ask the Pro question out there, you know what everybody's going to ask me about, right? It's the uh, ruling that he received on Saturday uh, with the quote-unquote embedded ball and him picking up his ball. And everybody wants to know my, my feeling on that. So, uh, you know, let's, let's cover that first. I, I mean, let, let me give you my take first on what my thoughts on Patrick Reed. I mean, uh, first off, I'm not going to sit here and call the guy anything what I did was after this whole thing happened, I sort of watched it and saw it. I put something out on Facebook, uh, knowing that a bunch of my friends, my PGA professional friends uh, and others, are rules officials. So they have a unique understanding of what the situation is uh, and how to handle the rule book. Certainly, I understand the rules uh, to a pretty good degree, given that I, you know, I'll play in tournaments and I have to advise people. But I certainly don't understand to a rules uh, official standpoint. And by the way, if you've ever taken the USGA PGA rules seminar and taken the rules test, it's literally the hardest thing you'll ever see in your life. Uh, so bravo to all the men and women who take that test and score extremely high. Those people are super amazing, frankly. Uh, and I got some great responses from friends of mine who really know the rules. And, and the bottom line was that according to the rules, Patrick did everything he was supposed to do. Okay. There was not any situation where he did not follow the rules as they are written. I think where we start to have the discussion is, was the spirit of it all correct? And my take on it is, look, you know, I, I often say to my students on the lesson team when we're observing changes and watching their ball flight, I say, look, you cannot judge it on one. You've got to, got to judge it on patterns. You've got to understand how to look at a grouping and continue to look at patterns before you make changes and decide on things. And if you take that perspective and look at Patrick Reed's situation, I think it's difficult sometimes to give him the benefit of the doubt because this pattern seems to be showing up all the time with him. Now, also, to be fair, he's a great player. And so what does that mean? Well, that means the cameras and the mics are on him constantly. So does that mean that he's the only one? I think we'd be naive to say that he's 
maybe the only one. And again, we're getting into a, a, a deep pool that I'm not going to stay in very long here, but I think the bottom line is you got to look at it from all the perspectives. I think at the end, the end result is this. Uh, and I think a lot of us who um, play in, in some tournaments, I certainly don't play in as many as some of my fellow professionals, uh, and we had some good guys weigh in on my Facebook post. I, I think the bottom line is this. When you approach your golf ball and you're playing to record a score, somebody else is recording your score, they have your scorecard, and you are playing for something, especially when you're playing for large amounts of money as they are, you are much better handling that situation like you're handling a live grenade. And that is be very cautious. Don't touch your ball. If you are absolutely unsure of the rule or you're, there is any question, I think you immediately have to s- step back and say, okay, I'm going to leave the ball there. I am not 100% sure of my procedure here. If you call over a playing partner or let them know, hey, great, I think that's a great thing to do, involve them. It just protects you and the field. But I think at the end of the day, you want to approach it with caution. And I think at times he doesn't always do that. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, that's the best advice I can give. Can I comment on on my thoughts on Patrick Reed? Uh, you know, hey, again, a great player. Uh, I think the guy's going to win more majors. And at the end of the day, I just think there's a pattern there that he's got to be aware of. And at the end of the day, those who are advising him, if they're enabling him, and not helping him recognize that maybe he needs to take a little bit more time and thought in these situations, then they're probably not helping him. So that's my two cents. Uh, You know, again, cheating and all that is a word that gets thrown around in in our game. uh, That's a a deeply uh, rooted word uh, and not something that we take lightly. So I think it's just in everybody's best interest to always... Think twice. As they say in um, carpentry, you know, measure twice, cut once. Or as they, uh, as the, I think he's an admiral, and Top Gun said to Maverick, he said, hey, your name ain't the best in the Navy. You got to be doing it cleaner and better than the next guy. Maybe not some bad, worst advice for Patrick Reed to take. All right, enough of that stuff, okay? So let's get to some of my other questions here. I'm just going to, as I'm sitting here with you uh, and relaxing here, we got some questions that came in through my, um, through my feed. And I had a couple here that were pretty good. One of them was from a guy who takes lessons from me every once in a while, uh, Adam Miller. Adam, hope you're well, man. Lefty, um, family man. And he had a question for me here on Twitter, and that was, are your students now pushing to play longer driver shafts? Does this concern you, especially for the mid-high handicappers? I still have trouble at 44 inches and can't imagine 46 plus being the right choice for more than a select few. Adam, thanks, man. That's a really good one, actually. So here's my take from the lesson tee. Um, and this is, I'm first off going to start this by saying that the terminology that a lot of, we all use in teaching because a lot of students hate this when we say it, but it depends. But I will tell you that my take on it would be if a student comes to me and has a longer driver or wants to experiment with one, I'm game. Uh, you may be able to pick up club head speed and thereby create more ball speed which is what you need, all things being equal, to make the ball go further. 
Uh, typically, I think we say one mile per hour is equal to about two and a half yards of carry. So possibly significant at times. But to be honest with you, I can't say that I've seen significant changes with students with longer drivers. Now, if a student wants to play, here's what I'm going to say to them. Prove to me that you can strike the middle of the face um, just as often as you can with a shorter driver. And obviously, I'm using TrackMan on a daily basis, so it's not like we're doing this blind. We're, we're getting data, right? So I think for most students, it's all about center contact. And I'll just say this. I, I think getting a proper fitting with someone who has options for you to test it is a great way to go. If you can test something that's, say, 44 and a half inches and something that's 45 and a half inches, which seems to be a bit closer to the standard of a lot of companies now. I know, I believe my new Titleist uh, TSI 3 stock was 45 and a half inches. I got it a little bit shorter. Um, test them both. Spray the face. Yellow can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder. Spray the face and hit 10 shots with each. And look at the pattern. There's that word again, right? And I think if you look at the pattern and you can maintain the pattern and your delivery doesn't suffer, then you should see a gain on the radar or the whatever launch monitor you're using. And so why not? However, I do not think that adding a couple miles an hour club speed, maybe a little bit of carry is worth it if the dispersion suffers massively and you can't find reasonably close to the middle of the face. I just don't see it for the average player being worth it. You're not practicing enough. You got a life. You got a job. Uh, you just don't have time to put uh, a ton of effort into creating a delivery that's going to be able to deal with a 46-inch plus driver. Why not make it a little bit easier on yourself for the most part and find the center of the face? And I'll give you an example. I've had students who had, um, you know, just as an example, a driver that stands out as a driver that was fairly long. Uh, in terms of length, was the old tailor-made burner. Uh, it was a pretty good driver. Um, a lot of students have had it, and it was like 46 inches. And I had multiple students who would hit that driver, and they would just smash the heel constantly. And so I finally just told them, I said, look, choke down an inch, inch and a half, and see what happens. And their ball speeds go up because they start to find the middle of the face. They pick up more distance, and they feel like they can control it. So, again, you know, Adam, it's a great question. And obviously, it's player dependent. I think your best answer is to get data and be aware of your face strikes. And if you're in the market for a new driver, and there's a lot of good ones out there now, I think it's important to go to somebody who can fit you with some different lengths and check it out. I've seen students with even shorter drivers who drive it just drive it longer because they can find the middle. They feel more comfortable over it, and confidence is a big thing. So take a look at that. Uh, I think longer drivers, obviously, it's, it's a big thing for long drive guys and all that. But again, you're talking about guys who train for it. And the other thing is they only have to hit the grid once out of eight. So I don't know that I want you necessarily being able to uh, only hit the grid one time on the golf course. Not like we have to hit every fairway, but we at least be able to keep it between the tree lines, be able to find the green and look at the green on the next shot. So check it out. I think that's, uh, that's a good start for you. All right, so again, uh, you know, a lot of good questions came in here today. Let me get a quick sip here. It is Sunday. Okay, I'm drinking out of my, uh, what do we got here this today? My Baltimore Country Club Yeti. 
Shout out to my uh, man, Pat Corner, who was on with us, uh, director of instruction at Baltimore Country Club. If you ever get the chance to play Baltimore Country Club, fantastic facility. Tilling ass design. All right, so let's look at what else we got here, gang. Okay, so uh, I have a question on, let's see, Jay Shearer. Who is this? Let's see who this is. Jordan Shearer. Okay, Jordan, how are you? Follows me on Instagram, and here was the question. The most efficient way to add club head speed. Hot topic these days, right? Speed training with something like speed sticks, flexibility, mobility. I'm 39 years old. You're young, Jordan. And don't hit it as far as I once did and looking for gains with a Z. All right, Jordan, thanks for the for the comment um, or the question. So we'll talk about that. I mean, first off, as a teacher, and I think all my fellow coaches out there would generally agree with this. When we look at metrics that we're looking at when we measure data on students, uh, regardless of whether we're using a lot of the data, it's still good to get just information, especially a first time. I have to be honest that probably one of the hardest ones to move is club head speed uh, because there's any manner of issues that might be we might be dealing with, as you mentioned, flexibility, mobility, uh, previous injuries, uh, just never having done anything at a high speed or never played sports and tried to swing hard at something or throw it far. Those things are all advantages. So changing speed is tough but doable. I think the first thing if somebody comes to me and wants to to get an increase in speed, Jordan, is obviously I'm going to ask them about physical limitations. Just keep in mind that, you know, your body has a, we'll call it a governor on it to some degree, you're only going to be able to swing the club as fast as your body is able to handle the deceleration of the club, too, at the end. You've got to be able to also slow the club down. So that is probably putting even more um, strain on your body than anything. So your body is going to do what it has to do to make sure you don't get hurt. So the first thing is we've got to make sure that you physically can do it. Uh, and for some people, that is the first step they have to make. Um, I, you know, I have a couple of physical fitness people that I work with. Uh, my first guest on the podcast ever, Jonathan Ross, my fitness coach. Um, send people to him, especially for really getting life fitness and coaching in terms of getting your body and mind together in terms of getting just everything in one piece so that you can live a better life and get healthier. And then if it's really golf-specific and they want a little bit more data and a little bit more golf-specific, I sent them to uh, Jason Mish up at Peak Golf Fitness in Maryland here. Jason's phenomenal. Top 50, Golf Digest Top 50 fitness trainers in America. So a couple great people there. So if you have somebody like that, Jordan, I would first say, look, if you really want to put the time into doing this and trying to to get gains as you ask for, I think the first thing you got to do is get a full physical assessment and make sure that you're healthy enough to do it. Now, in terms of how to do it, well, obviously physical fitness is a part of it. And then, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it out there. I'm a big fan of basically two different ways, Jordan. I think the super speed sticks are excellent. I've uh, had a bunch of my students take those home and start working with them. Uh, They work. If you follow the protocols that they have for you, you do the dynamic warm-up beforehand. Do not short that part. Super important. It's just like being in the gym. You don't warm up before, uh, you're not going to be able to perform, and you're going to get hurt. So stick with the program and follow it as the guidelines are given. I think you're going to see gains um, over time. Typically, super speed, 
Uh, it'll take about six weeks of following the program before you see the, uh, the numbers really start to stick. So you want to make sure that you're measuring, even with all those little uh, speed monitors they sell. I think it's the PRGR1, and then there's other ones out there, but they're not too expensive, and you can measure just the club speed. So you're, you have a gauge. Doing the speed training without measuring um, and recording, I'm not a big fan of that. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense, frankly. Uh, it's sort of like being in the gym and not writing down what you're doing and what the weight is because how are you going to know if you can push it? So I think you got to make sure you're doing that, Jordan, for sure. So super speed is great. There's also another thing, um, you know, and to me, sometimes this is just something that we need to do, and that is just swing harder at it. Some people are just, as I mentioned earlier, not programmed to do it. Uh, and I will tell you that I am probably one of those people. While I you know, grew up playing baseball early on, I never was um, told to throw the ball as far as I could, uh, as hard as I could. There was more control built into it to some degree. Same at the plate. Uh, oh, you're swinging too hard. All that stuff is a bunch of BS, frankly. And I also grew up and still do play hockey, played a little bit of college hockey. And uh, luckily, I was able to shoot the puck reasonably hard uh, in my youth. Um, but again, it's a really difficult thing to move speed. So it's good to just get in there. And if you're working at the range, get one of these little launch monitors. And once you're warmed up, you do your practice, maybe at the end of your session, give me, you know, some speed training. And uh, our friend Andrew Rice always talks about maybe like a, you know, three, five ball sets. And basically, if you get a, a starting point, call it your cruising speed, Jordan. For instance, obviously, we're talking with your driver, right? Get a cruising speed. And then your next four balls, you are trying to ratchet up the speed and increase it every ball. Take a little break. Do a little five ball set. Do another five ball set and you're done. Record it. I think if you can do that along with the super speed, I think you're going to see the gains. Again, it's all about being healthy enough to do it. Uh, and also, you know, having a coach that can see that maybe there's some technique areas. You know, the other area too, honestly, and I'm so proud, you know, happy that I'm getting into it, is I've, I've got swing catalyst now, which is I've got the pressure plate. And I'm about to get the, the force plate. And I'm going to start to be able to measure how my students create uh, power in their swings what power source do they use do they use vertical force torque which is the rotation or do they use uh, horizontal force and help them maximize what they do so there's some ways to do it there so at the end of the day you know it's what everybody wants obviously bryson's just you know crushing it out there there's a lot of ways to do it and you can do it uh, just make sure that you're healthy enough to do it and you follow a plan much like you would in the gym or anything else if it's haphazard or it's intermittent, you're going to see minimal to no gains long-term. So, Jordan, I hope that helps, man. Uh, good stuff. What else we got here, gang? Uh, we also had a question about, let's see, where was that? Uh, what are your thoughts on Sasho and all Sasho's lift the lead heel in the backswing idea? Do you notice any face contact issues caused by it? So... Uh, the reference to Sasha is Dr. Sasha McKenzie. For those of you who are not really maybe in deep into the golf instruction and, and uh, measuring world, Dr. Sasha McKenzie is a PhD who has contributed a great deal in our field of coaching and to understanding uh, power in the golf swing, what's happening in, 
and the hands and the arms and how it's putting uh, energy into the club and really a super smart person who uh, has, again, done a ton of uh, education all over, really all over the world at this point uh, within the coaching ranks. We're actually having him for our Middle Atlantic PGA virtual teaching summit on March 8th, and I'm sure everybody's going to learn a lot. So talking about lifting the lead heel to basically, I think what Sasha was getting at there is lifting the lead heel essentially helps you stretch further back and create a longer path of hands going back. So the question is, you know, do you notice any face contact issues? So first off, I've messed around with it a little bit, you know, trying to get my hands to travel further back, obviously letting your lead heel uh, lift off the ground is a way to create stretch, extension of your spine, your body, your hands go further back, the club goes further back, and you can definitely create more power. There's no question that I can create a lot more club head speed doing that. The question then is, do you notice any face contact issues caused by it? And I think the, that's a valid question. Uh, I think it depends. Uh, again, I mean, I think if you're doing it just to work on creating more speed, I'm not really concerned about the face contact issues. But at the end of the day, are you going to be able to translate it to the golf course? I think you've got to be able to find the middle ground. Uh, You can certainly practice, spray the face, work on your contact, but I think it's hard to do both at the same time. I think at the end of the day, technical work, creating solid contact, and working on speed and creating a longer path, hand path to create more energy into the club to distribute to the ball. They're almost two different things that you've got to practice independently and hope that the speed training eventually comes into your reasonably technically correct uh, delivery of the golf club. That's what we're all hoping for. I think we could all get on the golf course and say, all right, I'm going to lift my late heel, let my hands go back further, make a bigger, longer backswing, you know, think like John Daly and create more speed. Is that something you're going to be able to control on the golf course? No, I don't know. You could certainly try it in like a four-man scramble and let it rip, but at the end of the day, I don't know how applicable that's going to be for a lot of people in terms of making a score and being able to keep the ball in play enough to get a strokes gained advantage uh, on, you know, on their approaches. So it's an interesting thing. Um, I think it's a good way maybe just to work on creating more club head speed, especially for somebody who maybe is super low in club head speed and needs to find another way and maybe physically, you know, maybe has some limitations or isn't going to do the workouts, if you're just being honest. Make a bigger backswing, stretch those hands back, make your backswing way longer and see what happens. If you lose some fairways hit but gain 15 yards and it's in the rough, would you take that? I think I would. So interesting question there, you know, for sure, for sure. Okay, what else do we got? Again, hope you all were well. Just going to check out a couple other one here. Let's see what we got. All right, so speed in the swing. Oh, well, (laughs) Kevin Fry got a good question here on Instagram from my man at Flash Fried, F-R-E-Y-E-E-D. Kevin Fry, how are you, man? Kevin's a uh, a student of mine, comes and sees me multiple times a year. We work on his game. He's a busy guy, family man. 
uh, also uh, served our nation. So thank you for your service, Kevin. And Kevin's asking me, would be interested to hear about your game. What are you working on and what are your 2021 goals? Do you compete? Kevin, thanks, man. It's good to hear from you and hope, hope I see you back out on the lesson tee here sooner rather than later. Um, so for me, you know, a couple years ago, I started throwing my swings up there regularly in sort of a, uh, you know, a way to document and force myself to work on my swing. Um, for me, right now, what I'm working on is really some of the same stuff that I've been working on, honestly, Kevin. I mean, uh, for me, with my, my coach and friend, Ryan Chaney, we've always diagnosed that I have trouble with my, my torso. And what I mean by that is when you make a backswing and at the top of your backswing, you can see how a player's shoulders are sort of tilted or angled to the ground. I struggled with, have always struggled with that. I would get very flat, meaning my left shoulder would come up and point more sort of uh, parallel to the ground, if you will. Not quite that extreme, but you get the picture. And it would cause me to tilt and have a lot of sort of flip-through impact. So a lot of what I've done is working on, uh, you know, maintaining some of that in the backswing and really trying to feel additional sort of left side crunch and torso to the ground as I start down. It creates a bit of a steeper angle into the ball, which for most people you'd say, well, boy, we don't really want that because most of the golfing public doesn't want that. But for me, as somebody who has a tendency to be, uh, you know, a flipper and somebody who hits it a little bit, you know, thin at times, uh, it's really helped me strike the ball more solidly than I have in a long time. A little bit difficult at times as I, you know, over the holidays trying to get my game in shape and still taking, you know, a couple of weeks off. Uh, just didn't have a place at home to practice it. But, you know, I'm definitely striking my irons uh, as good or better than I ever have. I think the big struggle for me now is being able to take it, as it is for much of you, take some of this stuff and make it apply to the big dog, the driver. Uh, for me, that left side bend and tilt to the ground for all of you too, I see this in my lessons, is so difficult uh, because you're you're looking down at the ground more, you've turned your shoulders, you've tilted the ground, and you feel like your nose is on the ball, and you're thinking, how in the world am I going to get this 44 to 46 inch driver back through impact and not bury it into the ground? And we won't get into the details of that, but it's it's an incredibly important for being able to create a good delivery for most of you, and especially for me. So, you know, to answer your question, Kevin, I mean, my goals right now. First off, this year I really made an effort at the end of the year to create playing Tuesdays a couple times a month with my students. I typically don't play a lot. I'm hitting balls at work over at Nighthawk Golf Center, but I don't have a golf course there, and it's difficult for me to get out and play. I've got to make time. And as a busy teacher and a father and a husband, it's a little tough. It's tough to prioritize. So I decided to create days where my students and I would play together, and we do it a couple times a month. And I got five or six rounds in at the end of the year, which was a lot for me. So the goal for me is, number one, to continue to work on my driver and my wedges and short game uh, using a lot of the stuff that I teach my students that I learn through, you know, taking information from multiple teachers, guys like James Seekman and, and James Ridgeyard, and make my wedge game and, and game, especially 30 yards and in, as good as it can be and make my driver a, a real strength. Uh, distance when I'm hitting it has gone up partly because I've worked on going a little faster, partly because the club fit for my new TSI-3, Titleist TSI-3, has been phenomenal. Um, just a, an incredible fit for me. And that's where I'm headed. And the goal for me, honestly, in 2021, is not really about um, 
score as much as it is about having more fun on the golf course. If I start to strike the ball better and, and just play more and have a good time, I know the scores will come for me. I have to play more to do it. And then, you know, Kevin also asked about competing. I do, as a president of our chapter, I'll compete a little bit in our events and section events. Uh, you know, I don't do those to make money because we got way too many good players. I do it more for the camaraderie, the chance to do a little competition and be out there with my fellow professionals uh, and play some great golf courses that we have in our section. We're very lucky. So for me, competition is sort of down on the list in terms of why I do it. I still do it, but I want to love the game again a little bit more. I think, you know, there's this kind of joke in our industry for and anybody in our industry certainly will relate to this. It's like, oh, you're a golf professional? Man, it must be nice to play golf all the time. And I always say, yeah, it must be. Because one of the things that people in our industry understand is that when you get into the golf business, you don't play a lot of golf sometimes. Now, there's always exceptions to that, right? And, uh, you know, people make time. But we get so busy at times, especially when you're teaching as much as I do and some of my fellow teachers do, it's difficult to prioritize playing. So for me, in 2021, I'm going to make it a priority to play uh, and just have more fun. So the goal is 25 times. Now, that may seem really low to a lot of you. I know I have students who play 25 times in about, you know, three three months. But for me, that would be a lot of golf. So I'm, here's hoping 2021 is, a well, for a lot of reasons, is a lot better than 2020. But 2021 is my year for just playing more golf. And I think the scores will start to come. And I'll keep everybody posted on how that's going because I think it's uh, it's important to love the game, right? Like we all do it because we want to enjoy it. And I think for me, being on the lesson tee and being with my students is great. And I think getting on the golf course with them helps me have more fun, enjoy the time with them, and love the game. Uh, all right, another question we got. Uh, Tecton Game Calls, my boy Joey D'Amico, a good friend of mine, uh, former golf professional, family man. How are you, my friend? Should pros compete with pro-specific equipment, or should equipment be the same across the board? Joey, good question. I mean, I think you know we get into all this discussion that's out there about rollback and, and changing um, the equipment, the ball, all of it, because we're so, you know, supposedly making golf courses obsolete. First off, this isn't the first time we've had this discussion, right? Like we, we've had discussions before about, you know, golf clubs that were sold before that were non-conforming and that really didn't end up going all that well. Um, but I, I just don't believe that pros and the avid golfer should be playing, um, specific equipment for their tour tournament whatever it may be now let's let's be honest in a way that's already happening anyway because the stuff that the tour players are playing while is relatively close to what a lot of you out there are playing maybe in terms of some of the heads of the drivers in the woods um there was so much tweaking and so much um specific fitting being done for them that some of those clubs are almost unrecognizable relative to the things that you will get off the shelf or get fitted for. But as a general rule, I think for the companies, it would be really hard to sell golf clubs if the main selling point was that, hey, Tiger plays this driver, um, you can too. Now, obviously, he's going to be playing stuff in that driver, and there's going to be things done to that driver. They'll do anything they want for him. But I think as an overall, the idea that you can play the same clubs that the tour players are playing 
is really a, a driving force behind club sales, right? Like they wouldn't have the players do it if it didn't have an influence on the people in the core golf, the core golfer, if you will. So if you can buy the same driver that Justin Thomas is killing it with, um, that's a huge selling point. So I, I just don't see it, you know, I just don't see it being viable. Um, I, I just don't, I just don't know. I, I think all it does is create a flood of um, ideas and skews in our industry. Um, you know, all of a sudden now you've got pro-specific stuff. Uh, is that stuff that, you know, average am- amateurs can get their hands on? I, I just don't see the, see the point. Personally, I don't see anything wrong with the game today. Things evolve, okay? As a hockey fan, too, players are much bigger than they used to be. Go back and watch footage of NHL goalies in 1985 and look at NHL goalies now. Back then, they were 5'9", 5'10", 175 pounds. Now, they're 6'3", 215. They cover the entire net, not just with the equipment, but their bodies are massive. Things evolve. The players are bigger. It's just the way it is. So I, I think at the end of the day, we've got to really look at it very closely and not have a knee-jerk reaction to things and just accept the the game for what it is today and be okay with it. I think we're just we're always trying to make changes, uh, and I don't think there are fundamentally there's fundamentally one way to do it. Uh, I just think the equipment is so advanced, and it's just that's just the way it is. Um, you can still make golf courses hard, grow the rough, speed the greens up. There's a lot of ways to do it, uh, and it'll make the game still fun to watch. At the end of the day, I can't imagine having uh, separate equipment for pros versus amateurs. I just think it'll have a negative effect on club sales, and that has a trickle-down effect on so many people in our industry. That's just my take. Okay, so how about, let's see. Let's see, Zach Houston, by the way, of Colorado, bogey golfer, triathlete. Hi, Zach. Zach Owens, 1049 on Instagram. Snap hooks off the tee. How and why? <laughs> oh, why is such a deep question, Zach. All right, so let's, let's help everybody out there. If you've got snap hooks, let's first off, we have to define um, what a snap hook is. So we're going to talk from the perspective, sorry, left-handers, uh, from a right-handed golfer perspective. So snap hook would be something that severely goes from right to left in quick, like right now. Okay. So first off, we got to, the first question I would ask a question to, to the student, Zach, is uh, what's the ball flight you want to see? And, uh, you know, when you hit a good shot, what does it do? Does it draw? Is it a fade? There's a lot of information that we got to get first. But if we're talking about a snap hook, the first thing I'm going to say is, okay, fine. Where are you hitting it on the face? And we'll assume that you're talking about a driver, okay? It's very easy to hit a snap hook for a lot of students when they have severe toe shots. So the first thing you need to be able to answer for me is, where do you hit it on the face? And if you can't, then the yellow can of Dr. Schultz foot powder is coming out, and we're spraying the face. That's the first piece. Zach, typically... And again, generalizing without seeing it here, once we figure out where you're hitting on the face, I'm going to see snap hooks from two basically severe uh, deliveries. 
as a general rule. Number one is going to be somebody who is severely over the top um, with a massively shutting face, face that's looking to the left uh, much too early. They're going to smother the ball, make the ball start left, and it's going to go low and left. So that person, to me, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to get them organized. A lot of times what we'll see is somebody who sets up to the ball with their body angles in terrible order, meaning their body angles are pointing way left, their shoulders are tilted open, meaning pointing to the left of the target for a right-handed golfer. We first got to get them understanding that their body angles have to essentially, if you imagine a window, four-pane window out in front of the golf ball, we got to get their body angles to help them deliver the ball through the upper right uh, corner of the window. Right now, they're delivering it through the bottom left corner, okay? So their body angles are important. Tilt the shoulders back away from the target. Get the shoulders a little more square, uh, meaning right shoulder back, left shoulder forward towards the ball, and start there. We also then have to get them understanding where they have to swing the club path from. It has to be more from inside to out. Um, that's really important for that particular player. If they can do that, I think they're going to generally have a better, um, a better success rate of starting the ball high right and drawing it into the target. And then a, a secondary piece to that, well, certainly not a secondary, but one of the other pieces we're going to look at is their grip. Do they have a severely strong grip, meaning that both of their hands are turned to the right on the golf club? So if I want to add loft and keep the face open longer, I'm going to deliver for that player a different club path where the face can point more to the right through impact and keep loft on it. And part of the way to keep loft on it is to weaken their grip, get their hands a little more neutral. You want to understand what a neutral grip is? Just take a look at Tiger Woods' grip, okay? Pretty neutral grip there, all right? That's the over-the-top smother player. For the other, and this is maybe a little bit more in the minority, but it's the player who's too inside to out and hits snap hooks. They maybe even start a little right of the target and they move hard left. To me, just as a coach, I would say sometimes that's a trickier one. A lot of times for that player, first thing we're going to do is check grip. Sometimes we're going to have that player who has a very strong or closed club face. Think Dustin Johnson at the top of the swing, looking at the sky, uh, very closed. That player cannot afford to have limited body rotation through impact. So, Zach, if you're a guy who has a decent grip, maybe a little strong, club face is closed, meaning at the top of your swing it's looking at the sky more, and then as you start down, the face looks away from you, um, I'm not necessarily going to change that part. What I am going to do is try and improve your body dynamics through impact, your rotation if I can. And if we can get you to feel like you're turning your body more, maybe feel like the club is getting a little more out in front of you, maybe we take a, a stick or a foam noodle and stick it in the ground to the right of you at an angle, maybe a 45-degree angle, get you to come over that a little bit and keep your body turning, you're going to have the ability to hit strong golf shots. But if you have a strong face and limited body rotation, you come through impact and your body is... As you strike the golf ball, pointing still at the golf ball, hips, torso, your shoulders are very closed, meaning pointing to the right, you're really going to struggle uh, getting the ball airborne and not snap-hugging it. And then toe strikes will be your worst enemy, frankly. So really in those two instances, we're talking about understanding why the ball starts where it does, 
looking at your grip and face control, and then how it relates to the path of the club that you deliver. You gotta understand uh, those two elements, and then you have to understand how your body or the club has to work uh, in tandem to be able to create better shots. So again, I hope that helps you. Zach, I know snap hooks are kind of a no fun thing. It's something we maybe see less of versus the you know slice on the lesson tee, but it's still a difficult uh, deal to, to start with for sure. Well, friends, that's, uh, that's about all I got for you. That was fun. I got a bunch of questions. Hope we got through just about everybody's questions. Uh, I hope you're staying on top of your golf. If your weather's bad where you are, make some swings. Um, hit some putts, do everything you can indoors to try and stay on top of your game. And then uh, hopefully when the weather breaks here, we'll be back out and hitting it and enjoying, uh, enjoying the game. It's been a big, big year in 2020 for, for golf for sure. So hopefully we're going to maintain that momentum. Uh, looking forward, I hope to do this again. I'll, I'll shout out on my, look out for it on my social media channels. Um, you know, again, we'll ask questions, throw them out there. I'll get back on here and answer the questions anytime I can. In terms of upcoming podcasts, I've got some great guests lined up uh, going down the line here. I'm not going to spoil it for you. You knew I was going to do that, right? But I hope you are looking back at some of my previous guests. If you haven't, most recently, uh, prior to this one, Mark Crossfield joined me for a great a great discussion. James Hong, and looking back in the last year, so many good ones, uh, not just in golf, but all over the map. It's been really fun. And we're going to have a lot more fun in this journey of improvement going down the line. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I hope we had a little bit of fun answering your questions. Uh, This is Mark Russo with the Driving Improvement Podcast. And until next time, we'll see you on the lesson team. Take care.